Uh, I'll explain what I'm talking about. Uh, when we begin worship, it seems like every time first service, and I get up here and I face this way, and it looks like it's kind of empty, and I turn around, somewhere's in the middle of worship, and everybody shows up. It's like, wow, this is so cool. So cool. Um, does everybody have a Bible that we can follow along in? We will be teaching through uh, uh, the majority of Matthew chapter, or at least part of Matthew chapter 12. Um, we think it's apropos for us to teach that this weekend. So um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll make sure that Monty's back there. He'll get a chance to give you guys a Bible for those that don't. As we begin this teaching, let's pray. Gracious, holy creator, God of all things, God of heaven and God of earth, Lord, we so appreciate your love, your righteousness, your holiness, and your gifts of grace. God, we thank you for the great privilege and the opportunity to get into your word, your revealed truth, the truth that you've laid before us, Lord, to understand and know you. God, we thank you. We ask that your spirit would uh, envelope every individual here. Fill us afresh and anew, Lord. Transform us by the renewing of our mind and open our hearts and minds. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, Lord, that we might be touched by your truth. Would you speak forth, Lord, in, in power, in glory, in conviction, and in compassion. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, guys. Well, we're going to be in chapter 12 of Matthew. And on the heels of last week's teaching in Matthew chapter 5, where we, uh, according to Jesus, are salt and light, Rory did a good job of teaching that um, last week as we were in the park. Salt, that if it loses its flavor, is good for nothing. And light, which Jesus announced in John chapter 8, where he said, I am the light of the world. He who uh, follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This light and the responsibility thereof was bestowed upon his chosen people and thus his chosen church. Not to be hidden or covered, but to shine before men. This is who we are, and this is who we are called to be, different from the world. So buried deep within the gospel of Matthew chapter 12, Jesus speaks forth a truth, you guys, so powerful that it stands out as the definitive line in the sand not only opposing the self-righteous Jewish church at those times, but also flying in the face of the liberal evangelical churches of today that call themselves seeker-friendly and preach a weak, watered-down gospel devoid of boundaries, obedience, and rubber-meets-the-road truth. So as we get an opportunity, we find ourselves this morning at Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. And that's going to be the verse that we're going to go around, that's going to be the focus of our attention in this teaching. And Matthew 12, 30 is this. It says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So as we look at the context of that verse, as we study it contextually, let's start at the beginning of chapter 12. And we'll go through it fairly quickly until we get to verse 22, and we'll spend some time there. Starting with verse 1, it says, And at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, 
They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So in verse 2, as we take this little section apart real fast, in verse 2, the Pharisees claim it's not lawful to do this on the Sabbath. Jesus explains that the Sabbath laws do not restrict necessity in verse 3 and 4. It does not restrict service to God in verse 5 or acts of mercy as Jesus writes or speaks forth in verse 7. Jesus claims straightforwardly his deity to the accusing Pharisees. And I want to, again, go through this as a background to where we're getting you guys, to where Christ is marking out his kingdom. Jesus, in verse, in verse 6, where he says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. The Lord Jesus is God incarnate. He's God in human flesh. Far superior than the building in which God merely visited. In verse 8, Christ says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus claims deity over the Sabbath itself, which was designed for worshiping God. He's marking out his kingdom. As we get in verse 9 through 14, it says, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, Stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. So Christ went into the synagogue. The Pharisees asked the same question. This is the leaders of the church at that time. They asked the same question. Is it lawful to heal on this day? Jesus explains in verse 12 that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, pointing back to verse 7 that says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. With Jesus' obvious claims to deity, the Pharisees in verse 14 are outraged. As we begin in verse 15, it says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Jesus shows his extensive power over not only the spiritual realm, you guys, but the physical realm, as it says in verse 15 that he healed them all. 
in verse 16, he warned not to make them known. And Isaiah 42 is quoted in the second part of this section. And it's quoted to demonstrate that contrary to the first century expectations of the Messiah arriving with political agendas, military campaigns, and fanfare, like what the Jewish uh, leaders, the rabbis of the church were, were expecting, he has arrived as prophesied in Isaiah 42 with gentleness, with meekness for even the Gentiles. With verse 22, we begin to kind of get into the, the meat of, of what I want to teach you guys this morning. And we'll start verse by verse here a little bit. It says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Now in the context of Christ making apparent his kingdom on earth, we take a look at this man that was brought to him. And first he was demon-possessed. And it's a picture of Satan's control over the hearts and minds of men on this earth. And it is in every respect representative of Satan's kingdom. Um, and also his prized possessions held by his kingdom. And that this man was in bondage. This man was blind. Not only referring to the physical blindness, but also the spiritual blindness, where he had absolutely no ability to see spiritual truth. It says that this man also was mute. As with blindness, not only referring to the physical, but the spiritual, he also had no way and means to speak forth anything of real truth. And if you take a look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, it explains again, maybe in a different context, the, the power of Satan's kingdom blinding these individuals that don't know Christ. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. The God of this age has blinded. So as we look at this verse, it says, that Christ healed him. Jesus, by a show of his miraculous power and, and extensive power over not only the physical but the spiritual realms, begins to show the multitudes and the church that his kingdom has come. It says that the man, after he was healed, both spoke and saw. He was able to see, his eyes were opened. Once I was blind, now I can see, right? He was able to speak forth spiritual truth at this point also. Being healed. Verse 23, it says that all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? The crowd began to see and to understand that this very well could be, this Jesus very well could be the Messiah that was promised. Uh, uh, generations ago. We get into verse 24. It says, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. After all the miracles and all the works that Christ has done before uh, uh, these, these people, before the church, before the Pharisees, before the rulers, they deliberately reject these deeds that they know of to be God and declare in absolute envious rebellion 
that Jesus is from Satan and the power of these works are done through Satan. So Christ calmly begins to explain to him in power and authority that a kingdom divided can't stand. In verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought into desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Jesus here begins to explain not only the power of the kingdom of God, but also explains that there's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan. John in his first epistle explained the same things or similar things in that uh, 1 John chapter 3, the apostle there begins to explain that there is two kinds of children, the children of God and the children of the devil. In chapter 4, he goes on to explain a little bit, saying that there are only two kinds of empowering spirits, the spirit of God or the spirit of the Antichrist. There's a line in the sand. And in this kingdom's discussion, you guys, there's no middle ground. There's no neutral territory. There's no place to be walking on the fence. Okay? God himself is starting to mark out the territory. Look, this is what my kingdom is. This is what it's not. What is not? Here's what the description of that is. He begins to draw that defining line in the sand. In verse 26, it says, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The answer, of course, to this rhetorical question, you guys, is that his kingdom cannot stand. It would fall, and thus the Pharisees' logic doesn't stand. In verse 27, he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. This is the Lord's proof to the people that are listening, not only the multitudes that are there gathered around, but also the church, that this argument, this accusation, is categorically false. So in verse 28, Christ says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Since the accusations of the Pharisees have been proven false, then Christ's argument that he casts out demons by the Spirit of God must be true. If any of you guys have played, you know, or, or, or studied debate maybe in school or in college, one logic has to be true and one logic has to be false. If this must be true, then what Christ says is the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he's describing this is what it looks like. Verse 29, he says, How can one enter a strong man's house or plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He's saying, listen, the other kingdom is there's a strong man. But if I have shown you in front of you that this strong man has been bound up and that I have the ability to plunder his house, then I have power over that kingdom. It's probably one of the strongest and boldest statements comparing the omnipotence of the Almighty God to the power of Satan. 
and it's plain and simple truth. We get to verse 30. It says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. As Jesus has shown and proclaimed through miracles and power his majesty and dominion over the spiritual and physical realms as he healed this guy, as he lays down the logic of explaining the absolute power of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God holds over Satan's kingdom, now in verse 30, he draws the line in the sand that will forever distinguish who is with him or who's against by who gathers or who scatters. So this teaching, as we said before, this teaching, this verse 30, doesn't leave us any ground, you guys, for a place called neutral. It doesn't leave us any middle ground. It doesn't leave us any room for gray areas. This is the definitive description from our Lord's viewpoint as to what it truly looks like to be a born-again, spirit-filled follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We gather with him. Well, why is this? And, and how does it work, right? Let's take a quick look at who Jesus is and what he came for. As described in John chapter 10, I don't know if you guys remember that section, the, the section about the shepherd and the sheep, right? We don't have time this morning to go through that in depth, but Jesus is and calls himself the great shepherd of the sheep. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Along with many other verses, and we can, we can pick apart, there's a ton of other verses that corroborate this. Jesus is the great gatherer of those who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And when we as carnal sinners living opposed to God, are drawn by the goodness of God to repentance of our sinful lives, and we wholly consecrate ourselves and everything we are or ever will, or ever will be to Christ's unconditional ownership, God in his mercy and great grace, seeing that we're washed in the precious blood of his Son, pours out his very own Holy Spirit upon us filling us as to overflowing, killing the old man and releasing us from Satan's bondage and creating a new man conformed to the image of the Holy Son of God. This new image of Jesus that we are being conformed into is the image of the great gatherer. We bear his image, right? Therefore, we gather with him. Remember Paul's words to the church at Galatia? Chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the glorious grace of God, that he sent his only son to live a sinless, perfect life, that he offered himself on the cross to pay the price for our redemption and to pay the penalty for our sin by taking upon himself the entirety of the wrath of God, who bled and died in our place, whom God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised from the dead, ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, 
that whoever believed in him should not perish, but should have life everlasting. This is grace. Okay, this also is grace. That Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ has bestowed upon those who are with him the equipping, the boldness, and the ability to be gatherers with him. So through Christ's eyes, if we remember, if we remember um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So Satan's world system desires more than anything to blur the line. Christ has drawn the line. This is my kingdom. This is what's not. This is what it looks like to be in my kingdom. This is what it looks like not. Our first example um, as, as to Satan's desire to blur the line, right? To just wipe the line clean. Comes up in the Garden of Eden. The serpent's conversation with Eve in the garden, as he said, did God really say that you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Did he really say that? Listen, the attempts to blur the line and confuse what, what is or isn't the kingdom of God has begun way back then. His attempt was to confuse the issue and to lead the world into compromise. Another example is after Christ's uh, baptism and his subsequent 40-day fast, when he was tested by Satan at that point in time. Satan came up to him and said, If you are truly the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and he went in to go um, um, speak some verses, right? Uh, to, to speak for some scripture. In his attempt to blur the line, of God's revealed word, he purposely misquoted scripture to, to confuse the truth, blur the line, blur the line, and lead Jesus into confusion. He wasn't successful that time. Here in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees deliberately reject the words and the work of Christ and ascribe them to Satan, knowing full well that only God could claim to do these things, Therefore, attempting to make a gray area where a sharp line in the sand was drawn. So nowadays, you guys, what do we see as far as confusion? What do we see as far as Satan's world system wanting to blur the line that is so distinctively drawn in the sand? Well, nowadays, the world uses tactics such as this. Well, God really doesn't mean that in this passage. What he, what he really means is this. Number two, you know, there are so many translations out there that it can't really mean that. We've got to have grace in that area, right? Number three, we won't teach these passages because it creates division, and we all know that God is love. Number four, God's word was relevant in the times it was written, and civilization has grown so much that it definitely is not relevant now. Number five, 
Things that were not acceptable then have grown to become acceptable now. And the church and God's word has not kept up. Can you see the influence? Can you see that? The confusion that Christ tried to place and tries to place on those that are not grounded in the solid revealed word of God's truth? You guys, the battle's raging on in the fight between God's people holding fast to the authoritative word of God and Satan's world system that tries to discredit God's word, the cross of Christ, and what it really looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I do pray this. I pray that every one of you guys in this room right now thank God every day that you belong and attend a church or are visiting a church that stands solely on the authoritative word of God and nothing else. You guys getting an opportunity to gather together with the other elders and see where their minds and their hearts are at. This is what we are about. It's not easy. A lot of times it's not accepted, but it's God's word and it's God's truth. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20 says this. It says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. 2 John verse 9, okay, back into the New Testament. says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. This verse in Matthew chapter 12 verse 30 declares to the world that followers of Jesus Christ gather just as Christ gathers. We go to this verse a lot because it's apropos in the history of this church that we're now making. At the end of Matthew chapter 28 where it says, where Christ says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Jesus gathers, and so do his followers. As we kind of tie this into context with verse 31 and 32, let's get back to Matthew chapter 12 for a second. It says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So let's take a look at this. In those two verses, someone that's never been exposed to Christ's divine power and and presence might reject him in ignorance and be forgiven if the unbelief gives way to genuine repentance, right? I mean, consider Saul of Tarsus, who spoke against and persecuted followers of Jesus Christ, who himself was forgiven because of his ignorant unbelief. And I'm going to flip to... 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, and I'll read what Paul's words is. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. In context of what's going on here, you guys, Those who know the claims of Jesus Christ to be true, 
who witness his miracles firsthand and reject him anyway, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness, it says in these verses, is impossible because they've already rejected the fullest possible revelation of Christ and his truth. Let me ask you guys this. A hard question. Does your guys' lifestyle, as we examine ourselves in our own hearts, does your guys' lifestyle come to the same conclusion? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ's works to be true? Do you know his gospel to be real? Yet the fruit of your life shows that you're not gathering with Christ? In verse 33, and in verse 33, you guys, I'm going to read J.B. Phillips' translation, just because it kind of brings to the heart of the issue. The J.B. Phillips' translation for verse 33 says this. It says, you must choose between having a good tree with good fruit and a rotten tree with rotten fruit, for you can tell a tree at once by its fruit. The calling of Jesus Marking out the boundaries of his kingdom is clear. In Mark chapter 1, Christ says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It doesn't say go your own way and add Christ to you. It says repent and about face turn from living a life opposed to God to living a life as Jesus Christ, as ultimate, absolute Lord of your life. In Matthew chapter 16, it says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Deny yourself. Christ asked for this. He asked that you would deny yourself, that you would quit living a life that is self-centered, self-focused, with your rights held up to all importance, deny those rights and live for me. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father. Confession. The line is clear, the, the line's drawn, it's distinct. The costs of following Jesus are also clear. We, we've looked at some of that. Matthew chapter 10, it says, You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures till the end will be saved. Luke chapter 12 says, do you, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. In Luke chapter 14, he says, Whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. In context, in Matthew chapter 12, the last section, starting with verse 47, Jesus is confronted in the multitudes by somebody who came up and says, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my, mo my mother? Who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his, his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brother." For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
one of the costs may be that your spiritual family becomes your family and not your blood family. Okay, they're costs. So as we look at this, in obedience to, let's see, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where it says, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves to know that Jesus Christ is in you. Let me just kind of ask a few questions that we need to examine ourselves with. Are you gathering with Christ? Does your life bear forth the fruit of Jesus Christ living in you? Do the people around you, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends, see that you have been changed? Do they know that you live for Jesus? Does your secret thought life reflect a born-again soul consecrated to Jesus Christ as Lord? Does your daily schedule show that others, or do, do others see that your daily schedule shows a Christ-centered life? Do you feel comfortable sharing the wonderful things that Jesus Christ did in your life to others? The plain truth behind verse 30 is this. If your life at this time does not represent somebody who is obviously gathering with Christ, then we're against him. Now with all of this harsh truth, all this harsh truth being laid out, I want you guys to listen to the compassionate invitation of a loving Lord calling you in full knowledge of all this that he said to come to him. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, actually at the end of Matthew chapter 11 is this. Christ says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And he longs to say to us, as he said in Matthew chapter 25, as he said, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. The call upon my life and yours is not that we give of ourselves, but that we give the absolute entirety of everything we are or everything we're going to be to Jesus Christ as Lord. There's the distinctive line. Jesus is worthy of our lives spent for his glory. Jesus is Worthy. As we get ready to close, and I probably should call the uh, worship team up front if they're around. One of one of my favorite, probably recorded calling to follow Jesus that was placed upon somebody's life was done by Ananias to Saul who would later be known as the Apostle Paul. And it's from Acts 22. And you guys, as, as, I, as I look at this verse or the set of verses and, and I look at what Ananias had said through Christ over Paul, 
I, I desire so much in my heart to speak over you guys and listen to this. Ananias spoke and it says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the same hour, Paul looked up at him and Ananias said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witnesses to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. You guys, when Christ got a hold of my life, the one verse that comes to my mind every single time is Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. And it says, Thus said the Lord who created you, and he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. So you guys, as, as we get an opportunity to close in song and worship, I want to stand up front and I want the other elders to come up front so that any of you guys who have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior can come forward and we can pray with you, we can pray over you, we can welcome you into the kingdom of God. And for those of you that have been going to church a long time, maybe even this church a long time, and as you examine yourself in the faith and you find that, you know what, I have not been gathering with Christ, my life does not show that, I invite you, come forward. We'll pray. Let us re-consecrate ourselves together to Jesus Christ as Lord.